According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me, if you would, once again this evening in the book of Philippians. And uh, tonight we can take a, our first peek at Philippians chapter 4. Philippians 4.1 as we get started this evening. Remember, God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. So let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure each believer priest is spirit-filled. We know we're all spirit-indwelled, but we need to be spirit-filled as we study to show ourselves approved. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege and blessing that it is to assemble together tonight. And Father, I thank you for Austin Bible Church. I thank you for the testimony you preserve for all these years. And it's, uh, it's exciting, Father, to finally reach Philippians chapter 4. I don't know what lesson this is in the Philippians series, but Philippians 4 is the first message I ever heard when I visited. And Ralph Braun was teaching uh, on a Wednesday night in 1990. And uh, so I thank you for that. I look forward to tonight and uh, the classes to follow. Just thank you for being faithful, Father. I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. We do have a microphone ready to go so we can take some questions. If you've got something going on or Bible passages that you're struggling with or other things that are going on, anything at all. Been pretty light the last couple of weeks. I will give Doug the first question then. Not First Corinthians chapter six, is it? All right, never mind. Okay, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom, right? Correct. But a certain kind of flesh can—the flesh that our Lord had when, when He said to reach into Him. What kind of flesh does our Lord have compared to our flesh? I mean, is it a spiritual flesh? Is it? Um, just that's been I've been uh, kind of wrestling with that. Yeah, you know, and that, that's a great question because it comes from First Corinthians fifteen when he's talking about the resurrection, and of course there's there's earthly and there's heavenly. Um, all flesh is not the same flesh. Uh, there's a flesh of men, a flesh of beasts, a flesh of birds, and a flesh of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, and so the resurrection body is a heavenly body. It's not an earthly body. It's adapted to spirit rather than adapted to soul. And uh, those, are, those are clear distinctions. And uh, the glory of the uh, earth, heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is another. There's a glory of sun, a glory of moon. Anyway, there's a, there's a whole description there in 1 Corinthians 15 that talks about that. Interestingly enough, when Jesus appeared to his disciples, and, and Thomas and some of the others couldn't believe it was really him, and he invited them to, to touch him and reach here and feel the hole in my side and so forth, but he talked about being flesh and bone. He didn't talk about being flesh and blood. And uh, that's, that's kind of a, an interesting expression, and it's unique. It's only there that it's flesh and bone instead of flesh and blood. But it has sparked no shortage of, of speculation, and I, I do my share of, of speculation. Uh, why is it not flesh and blood? Why is it flesh and bone? And what might, if, uh, if blood is the life stream of this body, what might the life stream of, of the heavenly body be like if it's not blood? Uh, because the, the soul is the blood, we're told, and yet the new body is not a soul body, the new body is a, is a spirit body. So 
Um, those are questions I don't think we can answer today, but we'll find out, obviously, when we get one. Mm-hmm. We'll see what it's like. So, uh, But there are different theories on that, that rather than a bloodstream, we may have a light stream with respect to uh, being children of light, and uh, which is probably the coolest of all the, all the theories I've, I've encountered as of now. So, uh, so I'm going to go with that. I'm going to go with what sounds cool until, uh, until I learn biblically or I learn through the resurrection what, uh, what that's going to be. Okay. Well, our flesh cannot go through the ceiling if we have the That's right. The yeah, this body will not survive the rapture. If, if we were to be raptured in this body, it, yeah, so it must we be wouldn't survive that. Eternal flesh of sorts. That's Right. Anyway, thank you. Uh-huh. Yeah, absolutely. You're welcome. All right, let's go to Eliezer next, and then Al after that. Welcome back. Uh, my question is about this word diabolos, uh, uh-huh. which in Revelation is a reference to the devil. Um, and Titus 2, 3 also uses it in reference to older women uh, should not be malicious gossips. And is this word used there diabolos as well? Oh, that's a good question. In Titus 2, let's find out. The um, not malicious gossips or enslaved him much wine. Yes, diabolos. Yep. Yeah, we have the, that word diabolos, um, which gets translated as devil uh, or diabolical. It's, uh, you know, when we think devil, we think wicked or bad. There's other words for wicked or bad. I mean, grammatically, uh, diabolos means slanderer. And uh, and yet it gets translated as either devil or malicious gossips. It's the same diabolos. That's it. Yeah. Good question. I appreciate that. All right. Al had a question. Yeah, three of the 37 uses are malicious gossips and uh, 34 out of the 37 uses it's rendered devil. All right. Yes, sir. Uh, throughout the uh, Old Testament, uh, there describes certain uh, festivals and and uh, categories of uh, of uh, offerings that are given to the Lord. Uh-huh. And one such offering is for new moons. Uh-huh. And uh, it's throughout the the uh, uh, the Old Testament, uh, particularly seeing as I have it up uh, in First Chronicles. Uh, 23, uh, 30 and 31, and it says uh, that they're offered burnt offerings to the Lord on the Sabbath, the new moons, the fixed festivals, the number set by ordinance concerning them continually before the Lord. Uh, my question is, what is what is the significance of uh, a, any kind of worship or, or um, sacrifice or, or anything relating to a moon? I mean, generally speaking, we think of any kind of worship that related to the moon. That's not godly. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not idolatry in the sense of worshiping of the sun, moon, and stars. But it's uh, the new moon marks the beginning of the month, and so it's it's a recognition that as you have worship that's daily, and then you have Sabbath worship that's weekly, then you have new moon worship that's monthly, and then you have uh, Day of Atonement that's annually. So it's it's a way of marking the passing of time at each increment and, and giving God the glory each step of the way. So a new moon festival is centered on the uh, the beginning of the month. 
Uh-huh. Yeah, I think I have a good article on that too in the uh in the Lexham Bible Dictionary. And if I do, I'll send you I'll send you a PDF on that. I also owe somebody a PDF from the other night and I forgot who that was and what they wanted. So if I owe you a PDF, send me an email and remind me that I owe you a PDF. And uh it might have been Wes who was asking me for that. So anyway. You're welcome. All right, other questions tonight? When will the boil restrictions be complete? <laughs> when will the city get their act together? And I don't know. I can't answer that. That's, uh, that's not a Bible question. That's uh, something else. All right. Well, let's go to uh, Philippians chapter 4 then. Thank you, Chris. And yeah, it was a Wednesday night in May, May 9th actually, of 1990 when I first visited Austin Bible Church and Ralph was teaching, Pastor Ralph Ron was teaching from Philippians chapter 4. And I uh, thought, wow, this is, uh, this is where I need to be. And it felt like it was my childhood church. It felt like I was home and uh, I was meeting total strangers that night, but it was like I'd known them all my life. And... Uh, Many neat things. Of course, Sharon was here that night sitting next to Shirley Newton and other things. All right. Philippians chapter 4. Therefore. And that's a very loaded therefore to start chapter 4. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. And uh, we'll be dealing with this because really the link between chapter 3 and 4 is very strong. And the rapture doctrine that closes chapter 3 becomes the basis for the exhortation that opens chapter 4 that really forms the conclusion to the book. And uh, we'll talk about that as well. I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, whoever that is, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Two more verses. I'm just going to take us one through nine to start with. Verse 8, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. All right, so that's the first chunk of uh, of chapter 4. We're going to handle these as as a unit. Verses 1 through 9 will form the first portion verses 10 through, oh, I think it's 10 through 20 will be our, our 10 through 19 is our second portion. And then 20 through 23 is the doxology and the conclusion to, to the epistle. So that's how we're going to handle that. Chapter four begins with practical applications that rapture reflection should prompt in the life of every church member. It's uh, significant that we not only know the rapture doctrine, but that we reflect upon it constantly, that we maintain rapture reflections from day to day. 
And the more we reflect on the rapture and the more that the imminency of the trumpet sounding, and the more that impacts us then, it becomes our motivation for how we, how we live on a day-by-day basis. So you're going to see some of these expressions repeated in, uh, in the upcoming notes. But rapture reflection is, uh, is going to come up again and again and again. It's nice alliteration with an RR in there. But rapture reflection. And it, the more we reflect on it, the more diligent we'll be in our Christian walk. The more we neglect it or ignore it or, or act like uh, you know it, it's not a thing, uh, when we become uh, when we lose our sense of urgency and a failure to reflect upon rapture doctrine, then that's going to have a damaging effect in our Christian walk, and that's going to become clear also. So that's how chapter four begins, and it's the first nine verses of the chapter, verses one through nine, a practical practi- a series of practical applications that uh, the rapture reflection should prompt in the life of every church member, including rejoicing including getting along with fellow believers, even if uh, you've been having this fight for a while now, that's long enough, stop it, (laughs) okay? And then rejoice some more, and then pray, and then rejoice some more, and then pray, and we're going to learn all of these things as they get outlined here in these first nine verses. And then Paul has kind of a housekeeping item to deal with before he gets to his conclusion. One final item that Paul mentions prior to closing this epistle is the grace financial provision he appreciated from the Philippian saints. And it came by means of Epaphroditus. And so we've hinted at it a couple of times already. There have been some things that have come up in chapter 1 and 2 in particular that, uh, that uh, kind of had inferences related to this. Uh, but now we have it spelled out specifically uh, with respect to Epaphroditus. And some of this too we spoke about in the introduction because there's so much traveling back and forth that uh, that he was sick, they heard that he was sick, uh, he was distressed because they heard that he was sick, and so news has been going back and forth between Philippi and the place of Paul's imprisonment here, I believe Ephesus. Um, and and so we've, we've actually seen these verses just by way of introduction and by way of uh, proving, I think, demonstrating the uh, the source of the epistle being Ephesus instead of Rome. But in any event, let's look at verses 10 through 19. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. And probably the, the, the biggest secret of verse 10 is that phrase, now at last. You know, finally, at last. And really that helps us to key in on some of the timing for this epistle, some of the timing for the financial support they were able to provide. And it really is, is brutally insulting if, um, if this is uh, an epistle being written from Rome in his Acts 28 imprisonment um, because that, that would indicate that uh, even more time had gone by since the Philippian jailer incident and also that Paul had passed through Philippi at least one or two more times in the meantime and that they didn't bother to support him at all on the, any of those other journeys, which uh, then makes really verse 10 an insult but it's not intended as an insult. I believe verse 10 is intended as a praise, as a thanksgiving, and that the tone of the verse reflects that. So um, we'll deal with that when we get to that point. He says, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. And so when teaching a congregation about grace giving and about grace support, we obviously have to cover the issues of when you have opportunity, when you don't have opportunity, and how do you remain content even when 
it sure seems like the giving could be bigger than it is, all right? And when the giving is uh, smaller than you think it could be, then you learn the secret of being content. And when the giving is bigger than uh, you were expecting, then you learn the secret of, of how to abound. And uh, there's a secret on both ends of that, and so we'll be dealing with those things. And all of which is, of course, the, the context for I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. And I can't tell you how many believers want to take that one verse and just totally take it out of out of the chapter, out of the book, out of the whole context of, and just make that an absolute promise that you can uh, you can do anything. Well, the context here is in financial abundance or financial uh, scarcity. Uh, still uh, embracing the strength God supplies and advancing in the Christian walk, and not using money or the lack thereof as an excuse to not be obedient to the plan of God. So uh, yeah, we'll uh, have a big emphasis on that. And he says, nevertheless, you have done well to fellowship with me in my affliction. And the grace giving is more than just forking some bucks over. It's actually an act of fellowship. It is an act of worship. It is an act of sharing with the saints in, uh, in everything. And then you get to become more prayerful when, uh, when you're on board with, with things in this way. Uh, and so there's more. We'll get into some of these things. He does highlight the fact that uh, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when you're on the giving end of the operation, you're actually the one that profits. And so in verse 17, not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. That's why grace giving is so contradictory to the world's wisdom and contradictory to how the world thinks. The world thinks, you know, if I give you 20 bucks, well, then you just profited and I'm out 20 bucks. But uh, grace giving in the program there says that when you give as unto the Lord, they may collect the, the currency, but you're the one who profits. You're the one who profits in the spiritual realm because of the grace that you're able to exhibit as an imitator of Jesus Christ. So uh, verse 17 has got some powerful doctrine in there too. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied. Amply supplied. So whatever it is, the, the dollar value or the, the drachma value, um, doesn't really matter because it's sufficient. It's ample. And uh, Paul's able to rejoice over that. Having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, and here's what he calls it, a fragrant aroma an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And uh, what a blessing for us that we're getting this. This is priestly language. This is language of sacrifice. This is language that will go very well. It's going to dovetail nicely with our study in Hebrews as we learn what our Melchizedek priesthood is all about and the offerings that we give as church-age believer priests because giving is a part of that. Praise is a part of that. Thanksgiving is a part of that. Prayers are a part of that. All of this is involved in our, in our priestly function. And uh, to go up as a sweet-smelling savor is, uh, is, uh, is, is the key. And my God will supply all your needs, singular, needs singular, not needs plural. If you've got a little S in your New American Standard translation, then just mark that off. It's not needs plural, it's needs singular. My God will supply all your need according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. See, if you're grace-oriented and giving as unto the Lord, you won't get hurt by that. God will take care of your need in uh, in these things. Anyway, so that's the uh, financial provision. We'll handle that in verses 10 through 19. And then the epistle closes with one of the shortest, actually, greetings and doxologies of any Pauline text, verses 20 through 23. And uh, and really they're short, the greetings are short, and uh, and yet, what a puzzle. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Wait a minute, 
You've been living with Caesar this whole time? <laughs> you know, what do you mean Caesar's household? See, which causes a lot of people to think that he was obviously in Rome then, because doesn't Caesar live in Rome? Well, Caesar had households all over, including Ephesus, the capital of the province of, of uh, Asia Minor. And uh, don't confuse, uh, it does not have to be Rome and probably is not Rome in, uh, in the final end of things. But whichever household it was, it's still staffed with government officials. It's still staffed with, with uh, uh, Caesar's personal servants and, and uh, officers and so forth. So think about the opportunity Paul had there for evangelism and witnessing and impact in, uh, in political life. And then closing with grace, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So that's the three sections we're going to break it down into. Beginning tonight with verses 1 through 9 that I've simply titled Rapture Reflections and Response. Rapture Reflections and Response. I mean, what good is it if you get a rundown on rapture doctrine and say, okay, I know it. And you can know it forward and backwards and left and right and in and out. You can know rapture doctrine and maybe you know it well. Maybe you know it so well that you can even prove pre-trib and disprove post-trib or mid-trib. Or maybe you know it so well that uh, you can spot all the, the, the flaws with uh, the partial rapture view or other things like that, other insanity that comes along. Well, knowing is great. I'm glad you know it. But now, how does it impact? How does it affect your perspective? How does it motivate diligence in that sense of imminence? And, and does it include the items that are here, as we're going to see, including patching things up with a sister that you've been fighting with for far too long? Or, uh, or developing a prayer life that's been neglected because uh, you found it easier to, uh, to be anxious for stuff. <laughs> and then you just think, well, I can just be anxious for all this. And no, he tells you to not be anxious ever again for even one thing. Stop being anxious and be more prayerful over each of these items that he's choosing to test you in. And then, I, I can't even count, was this nine different facets? Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence, anything worthy of praise, all right, that's eight, then uh, dwell on these things. Let your mind dwell on these things. So this is where our mind should be fixed. And uh, again, all of that's in the context of the rapture. So we'll see this here in a moment. Therefore, my beloved brethren, all right, beloved brethren, my beloved and longed for brethren, my joy and my crown, my beloved, stand firm in the Lord. Verse 1 really starts off with the most tenderest, most tender, tenderest, I changed that like six times, most tender, no, tenderest, whatever. It is a very intimate greeting. Paul begins this epistle's conclusion with the most tender address given to any local church, okay? Or the tenderest, if you like that as a word. I think it's a word. All right. I mean, look at these terms of intimacy. Not only does he call them beloved twice, but in addition to beloved brethren, he calls them the longed for brethren. Beloved and longed for. And then he calls them my joy and crown. Joy and crown. And so these are expressions that uh, I think we understand from other contexts, but as it applies to a congregation, he never calls uh, the Corinthians this, okay? He calls them beloved. He calls a lot of people beloved, but to, uh, to double the use of beloved and then to add beloved and longed for, 
That stands out. And of all the places, you know, I don't expect that, that Paul was really anxious to get back to Corinth. He knew that there was going to be conflict when he got there. I mean, he maybe wasn't all that anxious to get back to Galatia because they were struggling with the legalism and the stuff there. Of all the places he'd been to, Paul was for the most part constantly looking forward. He didn't want to recover ground a second time. He didn't want to, he didn't want to, he wanted to blaze the trail and go places that no apostle had ever been to before. And yet, if he had to retrace the steps and go back and visit a, a previous ministry, number one on his list was Philippi. Number one on his list was this, this group of people right here. Because they had been so like-minded ever since he was there. And they had continued to keep sending him gifts and money and support and servants and friends and, uh, and different things. In fact, Epaphroditus, not only did he travel to Paul's location, he stayed there to be the, the personal minister to Paul's needs. And uh, so those are the kind of things that for, uh, you know, for a missionary, that, that has an impact right there. And you realize, wow, we're really, uh, uh, we really feel uh, like we're supported by Austin Bible Church, for example, uh, because, uh, you know, we've had church members that have gone and traveled and joined them in their field of service, like when Fallon went to Pakistan or when I went to the Philippines or when, uh, when any of us go to, uh, uh, to Ukraine, I'm really jazzed that Pastor Cliff got to go to Kiev, Ukraine for the first time ever. And, and that's, you just got back and I can't wait to hear the reports there. So it's the most tender address given to any local church. It starts with my beloved and longed for brethren, my beloved. 4-1, yes, 4-1. I don't know why that says 1-1. One, one. That's unacceptable, that's tragic. 4-1, Philippians 4-1. Philippians 4.1. Thank you. My beloved and longed for brethren, my beloved. In fact, I want to show this to you here if I can switch over. Philippians 4.1. And we'll make it bigger. If I make it too big though, I miss the point. Oh, that's way too big. All right. There we go. And that might be too small, but it's going to show you what I want to show you, so we're going to go with that. All right. Because what I want to show you is up here in the top right corner. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see. Uh, that's the translation in the English, but I think we can do better, and I think idiomatically it would serve us well better to adjust that a bit, uh, because it almost sounds like, in the English anyway, it's you know, my brethren, my beloved brethren, and beloved would be the only adjective attached to brethren. And then you have a relative clause, whom I long to see. And, and as that comes across in English, it almost seems like a, a subordinate clause. It seems like a, a, a separate expression. When instead, what we're looking at is actually, hosta is therefore, adelphoi, brothers of me, my, my brothers, Beloved and longed for. Agapetoi kai epipathetoi. All right, can you see that? And so it's, um, it's really, it's taking that, those twin uh, terms, agapetoi for beloved and epipathetoi for longed for. And because they're clearly parallel with each other, we should put that into our language on, on a similar basis, in the same kind of parallel way. So therefore, brethren, my brethren, beloved and longed for. 
beloved and longed for. And then he says, uh, joy and crown of me. Kara kai stephanos mu, joy and crown of me. And so those are a tandem. That, that's a linked pairing of joy and crown. They're linked with the kai. Likewise with beloved and, and longed for. They're linked by a kai. And so we have those things together. Kara and Stephanos. So if you have a son named Stephanos, you should look for uh, a, a bride, arrange a marriage for him, find a girl named Kara, and then uh, they will be Kara, Kai, Stephanos. If, if that happens. All right. So, and then he says, in the same way, stand firm. We'll talk about, well, what is that? How do I, in this way, how do I stand firm in this way? And what way is that? Well, we'll deal with that when we get to that point. All right. First of all, beloved. And uh, this will be a bit of a review because uh, we did a lot of beloved work in chapter 2. And uh, I don't mind repeating it again. But understand beloved and longed for, brethren, my beloved. The beloved does get repeated twice. I don't know if you spotted that or not, but the other beloved is right there. So you've got a, a beloved up there and a beloved down there. Beloved and longed for, brethren, my beloved. When we're talking about a uh, beloved, we're talking about agape love. It's agapetos, is, uh, is the, the kind of love. It's not philos love. Uh, a philos love person is a, called a friend, <laughs> all right? But an agape love person is called beloved. And that's significantly Christian. That is significantly uh, the body of Christ loving one another as Christ commanded us to agape one another. And so uh, we did study this usage in Philippians 2.12, if you will recall that. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So that was the verse back in chapter 2 that we dealt with when we did a uh, a comprehensive view on Beloved. I'm going to put those notes back up here tonight and we can look at them again. Uh, We won't spend, I think we spent three classes on them uh, back in chapter 2. We can get through it tonight in in short order, I think, uh, because we've had it before. Uh, But agapetos, keep in mind, it's agape with a noun ending, all right? So it is uh, the object of your agape love is what this is. It's not the object of your philos love. Philos love is, is friendship. Philos love is rapport. Philos love is such as you have a, a mutual interest and you have things in common and you are... And that's, that's not what this is, all right? And in fact, uh, as, as the church age makes pretty clear... Um, there could be people that you have no friendship with whatsoever, that you have no common interest, you have no rapport, uh, the personality just has total friction with your personality and vice versa. And, uh, and yet, you can have the greatest agape love one for another and the two agapetoi can uh, be victorious in their ministry endeavors despite the fact that if they were not involved in ministry, they wouldn't be friends of any kind. You know, they would not be friends of any kind. And that's, uh, to me, that's a glory. That's a beautiful thing. That the fact that you can have nothing in human terms in common whatsoever and still be fellow partners of the grace of life and fellow partners of the ministry and uh, in all of these things. So we'll talk about that as well. It is used throughout the New Testament, starting first and foremost 
with Jesus Christ when God the Father says, Behold, my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Now recognize that beloved is a theologically loaded expression, that it actually reflects the love that the Father has for the Son. And it really speaks to what we're called to do as we love one another because we love Christ, that we can love one another uh, and not hold out or not resist or not plunge into a, a human um, a humanism whereby what have you done for me lately and I start to catalog the reason why I just can't give you any more agape love because you don't deserve it. <laughs> I've decided that uh, I don't like you anymore and so you don't deserve my agape love. Well, that's a, that's a contradiction of terms right there. Nobody deserves agape love. God so loved the world, why? Because we deserved it. God's, uh, Christ so loved the church, why? Because we were lovely. See, agape love never takes into account the merit of the object. It's always grounded in the loving capacity of the subject of the verb, the one that's doing the loving. And so we're to love one another that way. We're to love God that way. So the use of agapetos for the Father's beloved Son. And uh, just grab the Matthew ones, I guess. Uh, Matthew 3.17, Matthew 12.18, Matthew 17.15, and then... uh, equivalent passages in Mark and Luke. Matthew 3.17. So uh, John the Baptist, uh, let's see. Jesus arrives from Galilee at the Jordan coming to John to be baptized by him and John tries to prevent him. You know, he's been doing this repentance baptism for whatever length of time. And here comes the one man in the universe that never needs repentance. And uh, he says, I have need to be baptized by you. Do you come to me? And Jesus answered, saying to him, Permitted at this time, for in this way it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So he permitted him. And after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is Agapetos. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And as fulfillment of Scripture, as fulfillment of prophecy and all the expectations uh, from Psalms and Isaiah and elsewhere that the Messiah would be the beloved of Yahweh, that the Messiah would be the servant of Yahweh, that Messiah would be um, the, the, uh, the Son of Yahweh, all of these things are fulfilled here. So my beloved Son. There should be no question as to who this is. Over to chapter 12 and verse 18. By the way, if you ever need to prove Trinity, that last text is a good place to go. Because you got Jesus coming out of the water, you got the Holy Spirit descending as a dove, and the voice from heaven, which is neither Jesus nor the Holy Spirit, saying, This is my beloved Son, and whom I. So you got Trinity right there, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in a, in a pretty easy passage to walk somebody through. Matthew 12, 18. So here's Jesus and uh, fulfilling what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen. This is Isaiah 42, by the way, powerful chapter. My beloved one in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him. What do you know? This sounds like John the Baptist at the Jordan River. (laughs) And he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. And it goes on to describe other things are going to happen here with the crucifixion of the Christ. So, um, curious to me, 
Matthew 3, the commencement of his ministry with his baptism, really, it's kind of like his ordination. It's like the anointing. And so now as a prophet, priest, and king, he has the anointing. He's able to commence his earthly ministry. And, uh, and really the baptism, that's kickoff for the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. Chapter 12 is halftime. <laughs> I mean, chapter 12 is the hinge in the Gospels whereby he has the national rejection on the part of the religious leaders, whereby uh, they're accusing him of, of bills above uh, empowerment. Uh, all of this rejection is now causing him to, to uh, stop declaring that the kingdom is imminent. He stops declaring the kingdom of heaven and he starts preparing his disciples for the cross. And it happens right here at this hinge chapter where again we have the reminder that he is the agapetos, he is the beloved son, the fulfillment of Isaiah 42, the one whom the Father is well pleased. Then Matthew 17. Matthew 17, transfiguration. (laughs) And uh, Jesus had told his disciples, some of you will not taste death until you see the Son of Man coming into his kingdom. And he takes three of them and gives them a preview of the kingdom of God. And I think my theory is he actually brings them forward in time and they get a, they get a, a short glimpse of the millennial kingdom. So six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, his garments became white as light. So for this moment, for this episode the kenosis was not a thing anymore, right? Kenosis got turned off somehow through the transfiguration. Like I say, it was either just a vision or an ecstatic experience or even a, a time travel event. And uh, his face shone like the sun and his garments became white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. And this is where Peter gets overwhelmed and decides to start talking Lord, it's good for us to be here if you wish. I'll make three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Like, like Peter's the super carpenter all of a sudden. I mean, he's, he's a fisherman that's full of these uh, ideas that he's going to build three tabernacles. And while he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. <laughs> Quit flapping your mouth there, Peter. Listen to him. So three times the testimony is given that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God, the beloved, beloved Son. All right, so that's really the first use, and then it kind of helps to define everything else then that follows. There is a passing reference uh, by the Jerusalem apostles to Barnabas and Paul, which is not only a passing reference, but I think it's quite significant reference in Acts 15.25, because this is the, the event of, the, uh, of the, uh, the very first church conference, the very first, uh, sometimes they call it an ecumenical council or whatever, that's just, I don't know, they can find different titles for it. But this is a time when the apostles and the elders came together and said, we've got to handle this. How are we going to handle this with the Gentiles coming into the church? And, and uh, some of our legalists want to make them get circumcised, and some of our Grace non-legalists say, no, that's ridiculous. And so we've got we to gotta figure this out. And so they do. And in the process of uh, reviewing these things with Peter and, and Paul and Barnabas and James, this uh, expression comes about. Um, let's see. Verse 22, it seemed good to the apostles and the elders 
with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. And so these are the men they select. Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brethren. And they sent this letter by them. And uh, this is the, what they're going to communicate. Uh, the apostles and the brethren who are elders to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia who are from the Gentiles, greetings. Since we have heard that some of our number to whom we gave no instruction have disturbed you with their words unsettling your souls. In other words, if we know that some legalistic Judaizers came from us to you and they're causing trouble, we didn't send them and we didn't tell them to say the things they were saying. It seemed good to us, having become of one mind, to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. And just that use of beloved, how special is that? That uh, that Because Barnabas and Paul are returning back to Antioch again and, and to carry that label of agapetos, of beloved, to carry that back from Jerusalem, uh, there's probably no greater expression that would have conveyed the unity between the, the Jewish believers in Jerusalem and the Gentile believers in Antioch than to, uh, to reference our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore we have sent Judas and Silas, who themselves also will report the same things by word of mouth. And it goes on to, to detail that. All right, so the first use is for the Father's beloved Son. Then we have this passing reference here by the Jerusalem apostles with reference to Barnabas and Paul. And then, man, it's like Katie bar the door. Because Paul grabs this and just runs with it. Uh, 27 times by Paul he uses the phrase either agapetos, which is singular, or agapetoi, plural. 27 times by Paul, often in vocative address to local churches. The vocative is when you're speaking to somebody. And so, you know, you could say, hey guys, or hey you guys, or hey y'all, or whatever. But instead he says, beloved. And the people he's talking to, he calls them beloved. Even Corinth, he calls beloved in these different ways. Often invocative address to local churches. And, and so I went ahead and put asterisks on this slide. I didn't, I didn't do that in chapter 2. Um, so that's an improvement on this slide as opposed to that one. Um, if a verse is a reference to a local church where he's speaking to a flock, then I put an asterisk by it. Or if he is talking about extended greetings to fellow workers or extended greetings about other people, then I put the, the little cross dagger in there next to those verses. And so that'll help to kind of chart out what these verses are dealing with as we look at them here tonight. But 27 times by Paul, that's staggering. And then we probably won't get this far tonight, but there's five more in Second Peter chapter 3. And that just, that's, a, that's, a, that's Peter hammering it out. In, uh, in one chapter, Second Peter chapter 3. Six times in First John and four times in Third John. So beloved, agapetos, is a, is a marvelous study and one that uh, I'm not sure if Grace Notes has an agapetos study or not, but it needs one. It's, uh, it uh, would be an excellent Grace Notes topic if, uh, I'm sorry? Go ahead and write it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm assigning that to you. And then... Uh, if uh, one of the students wants to write one and present it on a Sunday night, I'll be very happy to let that happen. All right. <laughs> so, beloved. Beloved. And the more that it gets used, right? And nowadays, when do we use it? We, we use it for weddings and funerals. Okay? 
Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today in the sight of God, in the presence of this company, to join together this man and this woman and the holy. You know, so, okay, so we use dearly beloved and we use it for weddings and for funerals, right? Why don't we use it all the time? Why don't we use it for Sunday services or Wednesday night Bible studies or just, or just whatever? Greeting one another as beloved. Because it's the reminder, or maybe just even throw out a little Greek out there and call each other agapetos, Okay? Because it's the reminder that agape love is what we're called to exercise one to another. And if I'm called to exercise agape love, it's a pretty good reminder if, uh, if I have to call you agapetos, right? And it becomes a little bit hypocritical if I call you agapetos and then choose to not extend any kind of agape love whatsoever. So I think it's a, there's a benefit in that regard as well. All right. So how many of these do you want to look at tonight? There's a lot of them. Um, and they're useful. I think they're very useful. Um, I want to cover these. I also want to get to the longed for. Beloved and longed for. Because that's really the unique expression. Uh, beloved, he calls a lot of churches beloved. Rome, he calls them beloved. Corinth, he calls them beloved uh, in First and Second Corinthians. Um, Philippians, of course. Um, there's, there's a number of these. Romans 1.7. So let me ask you, with uh, other kinds of love, you know, romantic love and so forth, uh, intimacy love, friendship love, other kinds of love, besides agape, just take agape away for the moment, with those other kinds of love, how long does it take to develop that? You know, does that, how long does that take? I mean, you know... I guess in some cases it's faster, in some cases it's slower, in some cases it's faster than you want to admit, so you don't admit it as quick as you maybe should. But, um, you know, when are you ready to tell that other person I love you? Well, they haven't told me that yet, so, you know, let's not push it. Let's wait, you know. And there's all that pressure. And, and to be fair, if they are a total stranger and you've never met them before, you can't possibly say, I love you. How do you do that to somebody you've never met before? But with agape, Paul's never been to Rome. He's never been to Rome. And so here in, in Romans 1, 7, he's writing to all who are beloved and because they're beloved of God. God knows who they are. God loves them. And Jesus loves them and died for them. So to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So what a, what a reminder you know, when we're talking about fellow believers in this church or other churches or wherever they may be, that uh, they are beloved of God in Christ Jesus. And so uh, on that basis then, are there any strangers in the Christian way of life? Are there any in the church age when royal family of God comes to visit? Royal family of God comes to visit, don't they? And that's, uh, that's a thrill to be able to support such men and, and uh, be a part of that. Other uses in Romans eleven twenty eight, and Romans twelve nineteen, Romans a bunch of them in in chapter twelve, uh, but in eleven twenty eight, with respect to the Jewish people, um, don't think <laughs> just because uh, the program for Israel's is on hold and God's working out a program for Gentiles in the church doesn't mean that He's done with Israel that He's forsaken them forever. Because from the standpoint of the gospel, they're enemies for your sake, but from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved 
for the sake of the fathers. God will always love Israel. And Israel has a national future. And, uh, and that's a truth right there in Romans eleven twenty eight, In Romans twelve nineteen, with an application to the church, he says, uh, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So there too, Paul is writing to these believers that he's never met, he's never been to Rome, but he calls them beloved. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. So he calls the church that. Um, And then in chapter 16, boy, you look at all these fellow workers he's talking about in verse 5, 8, 9, and 12. Romans 16, 5, greet the church that is in their house. That would be Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, Greet Eponidas, my beloved. Wow, who's Eponidas? We have no idea. Romans 16.5, it's the only place in the Bible he's ever mentioned, but uh, Paul calls him my beloved, who is the first convert to Christ from Asia. So that's significant. Uh, verse 8, greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Then uh, verse 9, greet Urbanus, or Urbanus, Urban, Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and Stachus, my beloved. So he puts, he not everybody gets this label, but the ones that do are, uh, are interesting. Verse 12, greet Tryphania and Tryphosa. Those are feminine names. They could be sisters um, in any event. Tryphania and Tryphosa, workers in the Lord. Greet Persis, the beloved, who has worked hard in the Lord. And then Rufus, a choice man in the Lord, also his mother and mine. So that's a puzzle. Figure that one out. How do you share the same mother? Um, who is this Rufus guy anyway? All right. So um, those are individuals that he calls beloved. That's why I put the little dagger mark on there with the, the cross sign. All right. First uh, Corinthians, surprisingly enough, they were schismatic. They were argumentative. Uh, three-fourths of them couldn't stand Paul, but he called them beloved. <laughs> okay. And so that's, I think that's a grace illustration right there. So far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Just because three-fourths of the church doesn't, you know, is siding with other people and don't want you to come back. You're still the apostle that founded this church and you're coming back. You're writing to them at least three letters and visiting them at least three times. So he calls them beloved in 1 Corinthians 4.14. I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Also in verse 17, for this reason I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. He will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. So we see the tenderness of it there as it's applied to, uh, to Timothy. 10.14. And uh, maybe the neatest thing about 10.14 is that it comes right after 10.13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is human, common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with a temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Flee from idolatry. And so I think in the uh, context here, of course, idolatry goes back to verses 7 and 8. Um, but the, uh, the, the, the whole context of this chapter is dealing with 
Um, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Let's not fall into idolatry. It happened to the Exodus generation. It could happen to us. So let's keep our eyes on the Lord. Let's, uh, let's endure in every test he puts us through and, uh, and flee from idolatry. So that's the context there where he calls on beloved. The resurrection chapter in 1558. And uh, death, where is your sting? Where is your victory? Thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, my beloved, my beloved brethren. Now, this one is probably the best parallel to Philippians chapter 4 you're going to find anywhere because of the admonition to be steadfast and movable. We have that same admonishment in Philippians 4 to be steadfast. So therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. So those are the, the beloved references there. Um, all right. You can let the rest of those go, I guess. You can look those up on your own. Plus, you already have them in your notes. You had them in your notes from chapter 2 when we were looking at it in 2.12. The ones uh, in Second Peter 3 grab our attention because uh, they do. What do you think of when you think of Second Peter chapter 3? According to his promise, we are looking for, yeah, for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. Uh, it's not just verse 14, though. It starts this way with verse 1, verse 8, verse 14, 15, 17. We got five beloveds in this one chapter. This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Verse 8, do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years are like a day. Verse 15, regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you. See, is there competition between Peter and Paul? (laughs) Maybe there used to be. There was an occasion when Paul had to chew Peter out because Peter was acting like a hypocrite in Antioch and, and Paul called him on it and said, look at that, you've been leading Barnabas astray, cut that out. And uh, who knows? And then, and then there was a faction that followed Peter and Corinth and maybe that could have been hard, hard feelings between the two. You know, Paul could have gotten his feelings hurt because Peter had taken a segment of the Corinthians you know, and caused some loyalty there. But no, by the time we get to this, my beloved, our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you. And that's why I think it's marvelous. And maybe the great advantage we have here is a training ministry, right? Because we have our beloved brother, Pastor Cliff, and our beloved brother, Pastor Dan, and our beloved brother, you know, someday we'll be talking about our beloved brother, Pastor Lewis. You know, we'll have a chance to talk behind his back when he's, when he's gone. And we have other illustrations, see, so, beloved brother Paul, and then in verse 17, but see, be on, be on your guard because these perverts like to pervert Scripture. And uh, since they pervert Scripture, I'm okay calling them perverts. They're perverting the Scriptures, distorting the Scriptures to their own destruction. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. 
So those are the uses there. There's a bunch in, uh, I encourage you to look them up uh, in 1 John 2, 7, 3, 2, 3, 21, chapter 4, verse 1, 7, 11, and then the four times in 3 John, verse 1, 2, 5, and 11. When we come on um, Sunday, we're going to look at the longed for, the epipathetos, longed for. And the idea of longing, it's like lusting, but it's sanctified lusting. It's uh, longing for the pure milk of the Word of God, for example. It's longing uh, for the fellowship that has been taken, and you would love to have an op- another opportunity to restore that at a future point of time. So there is a verb, epipatheo, that speaks of this. Uh, but as far as the adjective, epipathetos, this is the only place it shows up in the New Testament. Uh, the church fathers will use it twice. Uh, I don't know how useful those are to illustrate, but we'll see them anyway. And then um, there's even one use in secular Greek that I thought was amusing for its own sake, but not really doesn't really help to, to shine uh, what we're looking at in, in Philippians 4.1. So anyway, that's in the Lord's hands. And then we'll look at the, uh, the verb to long for, and then we'll talk about my joy and my crown. And uh, it's curious how people are called a joy when uh, a lot of times our humanity... Um, views people and joy as antonyms, <laughs> right? Like, well, I'm not really a people person, so I have my greatest joy when people are nowhere around. And yet here we have joy and crown that uh, is applied to people, the brothers of and sisters at Philippi that uh, Paul considered to be his joy and his crown. So we'll deal with that Sunday morning. Thank you, Father, for tonight. Thank you for your truth and the blessing we have to study to show ourselves approved. And Father, I thank you that uh, that you have designed doctrine to be taught uh, line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. And so if there's something we've covered in chapter 2, we can come back to it again in chapter 4 and come back to it again in other book studies and other places. And in uh, reviewing is always a blessing, Father, so I thank you for tonight. Pray for your grace as we uh, as we go forth that uh, the word spoken would last a whole lot longer than earthly words usually last because these are not earthly words, Father. Uh, Your word is divinely powerful and I pray that the full impact of this message would continue to dwell richly in our souls, that we would receive the word implanted, able to save our souls. And Father, let it dwell richly so it can spring forth and bear bear fruit 30, 60, 100 fold. Uh, Thank you, Father. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.